Well, this morning we are beginning a study in the book of Romans. Hopefully when you came in, you received a scripture journal like this. We, we got them for everyone in the church. And so if you didn't get one, uh, look for one afterwards. I think they're going to be on the back uh, little podium there. And, and speaking of the podium, there's also flyers for the uh, Faith in Blue event on the 8th. If you want to take one, hand it to someone. Uh, and then uh, Jan Wells, who teaches our women's Bible study, uh, her books came in on knowing the God of all comfort. So ladies, uh, if you want to grab one today and get it uh, just a day early before Bible study, uh, those are there as well. The book of Romans. Romans is considered by many pastors to be the Mount Everest of books to preach. Um, as I talk to my friends, those that are my age and younger especially, very few of us have preached through the book of Romans. We've taught out of passages in Romans. Uh, there's some great ones we'll see today, and I believe many of you know, but, but to do the book, it, it is considered the Mount Everest. It's like this thing where you've got to be in shape, uh, so to speak, to, to tackle it. One of my living heroes, John Piper, he waited 18 years before he preached through Romans, and he was 52 when he did that. Some of you are doing your math, and you're thinking, Paul, you've only been doing this 15, right? We've been talking about 15, and you just turned 50. Do you think you got an edge on John Piper? And I do not think I have an edge on John Piper at all, but I just want to illustrate. I mean, to me, John Piper, author of books and a blessing to so many beyond where he pastored, um, 18 years, and, and he, in, in his opening sermon back in 1998, talked about coming up to the edge many times and deciding he wasn't, wasn't ready yet. But then he said this, and I want to quote this. He said, in 1998, I am not as moved now as I used to be by the tyranny of the urgent and by the need to respond to every trendy view that blows across the cultural sea in America Well into midlife, I have a deep confidence that the best way to be lastingly relevant is to stand on rock-solid, durable, old truths, rather than jumping from one pragmatic bandwagon to another. Romans is as solid and durable and reliable and unshakable and thorough as the truth can get. And I resonate with John Piper. It is solid and durable and reliable and unshakable and thorough. And, and there will be times to pause, Romans. Let me just tell you, we, we will be in this book for a while. Uh, I have not mapped it out uh, very far just yet, um, but we'll stop for Christmas and, of course, Resurrection Sunday and Reformation Sunday, and, and there will be pauses. But uh, this is why we got this journal for you, because we want you to have, have a place where you have the scriptures on one side, and you can take notes along the way. Uh, you can read ahead and kind of know where we're going. Um, but but we, we will spend time in, in this book because there's going to be times to do topics and series and cover things, yes, related to our cultural moment. But I do agree um, with something he said all those years ago that um, this, this is it. This is um, rock solid for, for a lot of different reasons. And that's my hope this morning is to kind of set the table in this message for the series. The Apostle Paul, he wrote 13 Think about that, 13 of our 27 New Testament books. So just about half of what we have in the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. And and Romans is considered uh, arguably the most important of all his letters. 
Um, it's considered the greatest work of theology. Many write that as a descriptor of the book of Romans. Now, um, as, as one commentator, Robert Yarbrough, puts it, it's not like a theological textbook in our day. It's not, don't think of it as the greatest work of theology the way we think of a textbook. And there's great systematic theologies in our day, which of course are not scripture. This Romans by the Apostle Paul is God breathed. It's God's very word, right? So it's, it's, it is the greatest work of theology, but it is in the context of, of what it is, which is a letter, right? We call it the book of Romans. That's what the graphic says. But, but remember, it's actually a letter. It's a letter written to a congregation or possibly several in, in the city of Rome. You know where Rome is, Italy. Think about that for a minute. Imagine the, the, the map in Europe. And at one time, the Apostle Paul is writing to this city, this church, or these congregations. We'll talk more about that context in, in just a moment. In this letter to this church, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to deal with a wide range of theological points. Uh, for example, we're going to find God's glorious, eternal, saving purpose and plan. We're going to find the specific gospel message. Gospel means good news. We, we're going to Remind each other of that every week, week in and week out. We have to not hear gospel as just some church word, but we have to understand when our English Bibles put that word, it means good news. And, and usually it is specifically the good news that offers salvation. We're, we're going to learn about our sinfulness, human sinfulness. We're going we're to learn about the wrath of God, that, that our holy God that we sang about, um, he's going to deal with sin. Um, he has dealt with it on the cross through Christ. And, and yet for those that don't respond, right, then what? We're, we'll look at those things. Uh, we're going to learn about the, the cross and Jesus' resurrection as the means God used to rescue us. Justification, this, this doctrine that was so important at the time of the Reformation, I think it still is. What does it mean for God to declare us justified or, or righteous? He does it through grace, through faith in Christ. We're going to look at the struggle of sanctification. That's just another kind of big theological word that um, can mean a couple things, but, but the struggle in terms of progressive sanctification. That is, as you've heard me joke before, um, when God saved us, he didn't make us perfect. That took me two weeks. That's my joke. You've heard me say it. And you laugh because you know it's not true, especially my family knows that's far from true. So if God didn't make us perfect, at least in experience, he, he did positionally, and we'll get into all that. There, there's positional holiness, positional sanctification. When, when God looks at a Christian, he sees the righteousness of Christ. So we're, we're righteous and justified and declared right and holy, but progressively we're becoming what we are, and there's a struggle. Why do I do the things I don't want to do? Why do I not do the things I don't want to do. Something like that. Paul's going to talk about that in Romans 7. We're going to learn about God's faithfulness to his promises and to his people. God's faithfulness. We're going to hear the call to self-sacrificial living and love for God and for others. Romans, um, the, the first 11 chapters are going to be 
heavy on the theology and the doctrine. And there's application, but it's heavy on these truths. They're the foundation for then the shift that happens at Romans 12, that word, therefore. Always ask, why is therefore? What's a therefore? The therefore in Romans 12.1 is in light of everything that Paul's just been saying, here's how you live. And so, yeah, it'll be a ways away, but we'll get there. We're going to learn about the affirmation of fellow Christians despite secondary differences. How do we, how do we hold first things tight and, and, and not abandon them, but hold loosely in an open hand secondary things, tertiary things? Uh, the centrality of mission, that is um, evangelistic outreach, going and sharing the gospel. And then, of course, the centrality of the scriptures uh, to us for saving for a saving knowledge of God. And there's more. And you hopefully hear there's just a lot of things. Uh, listen to this. All these truths, those bullet points I just mentioned, these are in the course of 432 verses containing over 7,000 Greek words. It's over 9,000 in the English translations. So it's big. And the richness, if, if this will help us appreciate it, if we realize this, that there were over 60 commentaries written on Romans just in the first two decades of the 21st century alone. Just in the first two decades of the 21st century, over 60 commentaries on Romans were written. And there's over 740 Romans commentaries that have been written over church history. A lot of ink has been written on this amazing work of theology. But more than, more than theology, just to give people, you know, tidbits of information and, and good doctrine, this work of theology, this, this letter has helped millions of people come to follow Jesus. To name a few, St. Augustine, long, long time ago, in like the 300s, long time ago, he was converted through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. He was born in North Africa. He became a professor of rhetoric in Milan, Italy, right? And he, he was torn in his life to the point of tears, scholars tell us, between the truth of Christianity and his love for wild parties and just living a sinful life, like a lot of people. He writes about one day in the summer of AD 386, he picked up some friend of his, had a scroll of Romans, and he read from Romans 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Augustine writes that suddenly all was clear, and he writes, a, fl a light flooded my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. That's in his confessions. He was converted by reading those verses. <laughs> There's other ones that we may think of more, but God worked through his word. As a worship team this morning uh, in our early prayer, we, we read from Isaiah 55, where God promises that his word will accomplish what he intends just as rain comes down and waters and does its work for the, the sower, the farmer, and, and so forth, God's word will accomplish his purposes. And it was God's purpose to, to save St. Augustine in 386. How about a thousand years into the future? One of my favorites, of course, Martin Luther. 
in November of 1515. So 1515, this is still a couple years before the, nine, the 95 Thesis, but this is when God was working in, in Luther. He was now a professor of theology. He was finally able to read the word. This, this, is, this has to blow our mind, and I've got to take 25 seconds to remind us. Uh, we have Bibles aplenty in our homes. I have probably 10 in my office, probably 30 more in my house. Of course, we all have these, and we can get to God's word like that. They didn't have it like that. And so Martin Luther, as a monk, had never read the New Testament, and he's wrestling with, is God a holy, and if he is, he's so sinful, and how can he be right? And, and so he gets sent to study theology and to study the Bible, to read the New Testament. And in the course of studying and reading, he's teaching the letter of Romans to his students, and it's finally truths that we'll see in the next couple of weeks out of Romans 1 that come to, to break through on him. He begins to understand what, what he would call alien righteousness. Not little green aliens floating around aliens, but alien as an outside of, external, that the righteousness of God is alien. It, it comes into us, and we become righteous by this work that God does, not by what we try to do, and it would be a, a change for Luther, and he would be saved, and he would call Romans the very purest gospel, the very purest good news as the letter unfolds. Or a little farther into the future, of course, past for us, in England in the 1700s, there was a clergyman by the name of John Wesley. Everybody heard of John Wesley or his brother Charles? Great revivalists and hymn writers. John Wesley went to an evening service in London and at this service, someone was reading, get this, Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. So he overhears someone reading through Martin Luther's commentary on Romans out loud. And John Wesley writes, he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. How astounding. So from Luther's teaching sprang the great reformation of the church in the 16th century and through the conversion and preaching of John Wesley, Christianity experienced revival in England and around the world in the 18th century. And so there's just three figures that came to know the living God through Romans, St. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Wesley, they were changed by this letter. One other person, his name's Paul. Oh, that's me. I don't have a dramatic conversion from Romans quite like those guys, but I have a story of the book of Romans as well. So I came to know Christ in high school, um, 13, 14, 15, and then those years kind of transitioned from junior high to high school. And our youth group, uh, one of the things it did was go to Mexico, Mexicali, Mexico, every spring break uh, for a missions trip. And so I, if I'm, my memory is right, I was 15. I was second half of my sophomore year, and I was going to Mexico for the first time. And um, I was telling one of my kids about this trip. Um, it cost money to go to Mexico, even way back in the 80s. Um, you know, things weren't free. Uh, and so we had to pay uh, to go 
But we also had to do some work in order to go. It wasn't just to pay the money and get to have a vacation missions trip to Mexico, uh, which was nothing of a vacation at all. We slept in tents. Uh, we had to use outhouses, and it was hot, and there were no showers. And it was, you know, for high school kids from Sonoma County, it was pretty grimy in, in one sense, um, not, a, not a vacation at all. So, so we had to do that when we got there. But, but for the about, I don't know, eight to 10 weeks leading up to the trip, we would get up at 5 a.m. on Friday mornings. That's no big deal for me now. Uh, it probably really wasn't too big of a deal for me back then. I've always been a bit weird and have enjoyed mornings. But we met as high school and college kids Friday morning at the church in Sebastopol for our training to, to get ready to go to Mexico. And our youth pastor had a bunch of different things we had to do over the years. And, and that first year, one of the things was to memorize what is called the Roman Road. Raise your hand if you've heard that before, the Roman, the Roman Road. So Romans chapter 3 kind of begins the Roman Road. And what the Roman Road is, it's, it's simply six or so verses from Romans 3 into Romans 12 that share in a pretty clear way how to come to know God, what the good news gospel message is. And so we had to memorize these. And so Romans 3.10, I put it on the screen in front of you. The Apostle Paul writes, quoting from the Psalms, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one. And we're gonna see in context when we get there in chapter three, Jew and Gentile, doesn't matter who you were born, what family and what ethnic background, no one is righteous. No one is at all. In fact, a few verses later in verse 23, the Apostle Paul writes that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short. Think of an arrow being shot by an archer and, and the arrow misses the mark, falling short. God has a way he calls people to live and all fall short of God and his righteousness, his glory. There's a problem Chapter 5, verse 8, though, starts to turn the corner. God shows his love for us in that when we got our act right, Christ died for us. Thank you. That's not what it says. Hopefully you were listening and reading. No, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, falling short of the glory of God, not righteous, Christ died for us. And then he'd say a few verses later, next chapter, chapter six, verse 23, the wages of our sin, the wages of our falling short, what we deserve for not living the way God calls us to live is is to die, to to have a, a life eternally separated from God. But the free gift, the gospel, the free gift of grace, as he would be unpacking it, that free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not just a, anybody want, want to have a free gift? Here you go. No, it's, it's through the person and work of Jesus, but it's available. It's available. The wages of sin is death, but there's a free gift of everlasting eternal life through Jesus our Lord. So then we may be wondering, well, how do we get that? 
And so in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Paul answers, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with the heart that one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. How do you get right with God? How do you get this free gift to apply to you? You, you admit you're a sinner and you need a forgiver and that it's Jesus and you, you trust and believe in him that he died and rose and that's it. That's the gist of it. Believing, repenting is caught up in, in biblical belief and faith, confessing, acknowledging, and we, we get saved. Glorious gospel. And then the Romans wrote ends in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, the apostle says, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, all of what he's been writing in chapters 1 through 11, I appeal to you to present your body as a living sacrifice, right? right? A sacrifice usually is not living. Uh, if it's a sacrifice on an altar, right? Think of the Old Testament sacrifices, dead animals that are going to be presented. But, but now we, we aren't to die for God, literally, unless, of course, he calls you to do that. But as living people, we're to live for God and be a living sacrifice to present ourselves to him. And that is a spiritual act of worship, we're to not be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's the sanctification piece. And we can discern what God's will is, his good and acceptable, his perfect will. And so that's the Christian life. And so you have the Roman road. There's no one righteous and all the way through to these verses. And I love the fact that over 35 years ago, I memorized that and I still, still have it, still know it. This Roman road. So that was an impact in my life, one of the early impacts of the book of Romans. And I'm thankful. Well, I want to pull that phrase from Luther, Martin Luther, and, and as we look at our verses for the little time we have left this morning, uh, he called, Martin Luther did, Romans the very purest gospel. And that's what we're going to look at in just the first seven verses today. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you did. If you didn't, you all got one. Uh, so turn to whatever page that is um, in the journal, in your Bible, on your device, if you're using a device, and let's look at the very purest gospel. Follow along as I read Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray one more time with me? Father, 
Thank you for this very purest gospel letter that we're going to look at as a church. And Lord, I've been praying all week, prayed it several times already today. Would you do again in our lives what you have done over 2,000 years in the lives of, of your people through this letter? God, would you bring about conversion like St. Augustine and Martin Luther and John Wesley? Would you grow us to understand who you are, what you've done, and these, these great truths we're going to learn? Would you help us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, pleasing to you as we study this book? We, we ask you to do it again and again in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, J.D. Greer, he's a pastor, and, and he likes to say that the gospel isn't the diving board into the pool of Christianity. No, the gospel is the pool. And the late Tim Keller, he would put it this way, the gospel, it's not the ABCs of the Christian life. No, it's the A to Z of the Christian life. It, it is Christianity. The gospel, friends, is it the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ? And we, we will see, I hope, the very purest gospel, not only even in this, this salutation, this introduction that we just looked at, but in, in the weeks to come. Um, Paul is writing to the church at Rome. Now, we're just going to start to touch on Rome. We'll get more into a little bit of them next week. Um, but we need to understand just a, a couple of things as we, as we get into this. He says here, let me read verses 1, uh, verse 5, and verse 6. We'll come back to verses 2 through 4 in a minute. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, now verse 5, through whom, and he's been talking about Jesus in verses 2 to 4, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So a couple things to note here. Paul first calls himself a servant, okay? But you may have a footnote in your Bible. Uh, it's the Greek word doulos. Um, and I think it's significant to understand this. Um, the word doulos can have a range of meaning, but it, it really does mean slave. Now, it doesn't mean slave like we think of like slavery in the United States in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. Don't think that. Um, but he was a slave in the sense that he belonged to, to Jesus. Um, that, that's what he was indicating by this word. Uh, the, the word deacon, we, we have deacons in our church. Uh, that, that means minister or servant. And so uh, to deacon means to serve. He could have used that word and called himself uh, a deacon, a servant, but he used doulos, a word that means slave. And again, different than U.S. slavery issues completely, um, but to belong to someone, it definitely meant. And, and he is identifying himself as belonging to Jesus. This word also would connect him to the Old Testament some of the great people like Moses, Joshua, David, and other prophets, they called themselves servants and slaves of, of God. And the Apostle Paul is putting himself right there. This is who's, who's, he, belong, who's he is. Who, however you say that. He belongs to Jesus. And he says he's been set apart, 
called to be an apostle, we'll, we'll touch on that in a moment, but set apart for the gospel of God, good news of God, this good news concerning his son. And ultimately, as we jump there to verse five, this grace he's received, this call to be an apostle, he says it's to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. For the sake of his name. It reminds me of Psalm 115. Not to us, but to your name. He's been called to, to bring about the obedience of faith for God's fame, for God's name. One scholar summarizes that phrase like this. And, and by the way, he's going to end Romans with that phrase. Chapter 16, verse 26, he will speak again of bringing about the obedience of faith. Obedience is required, but it's an obedience that flows from saving faith, and it's always connected to ongoing faith. Although Paul can speak of people's initial response as obeying the gospel, it's unlikely here that that's what he has in mind. His purpose of his apostleship was not merely to bring people to conversion, but to bring about transformed lives, to obey God. We are saved by grace, but we are called to obey that, that faith that saves, changes, and transforms, and it leads to our obedience. And that's what the Apostle Paul's mission was. The Apostle Paul's mission, his apostleship, it all began for him as a hater of Christianity, you might recall. In, in the book of Acts, chapter 9, that's kind of where the story turns to focus on him in those early days of Christianity. He was a hater of Christianity, a persecutor. He gave his nod of approval to the first martyr of Christianity, Stephen. And he was looking to arrest Christians. He was a Pharisee. Um, he, he was zealous for the Old Testament law. And he hated this sect. This, this, he probably thought of it as a cult, the, the, the way, these followers of Jesus. But one day on a road, uh, the road to a place called Damascus, he meets Jesus, and uh, the scriptures tell us that to be an apostle, you had to meet the risen Jesus, and Paul did. Jesus appears and calls him, and he's blinded, and, and he's converted, and, and uh, we'll, we'll just leave it there, um, and he becomes, I mean, some people say he had a name change. He didn't. He, his name was Saul because he was Jewish, but as his call to his apostleship was predominantly for the Gentiles, well, he starts going by the Gentile name of Saul, which is Paul. And so he, he is the Apostle Paul, the great missionary to the Gentiles, called to be an apostle, set apart for this gospel, for the nations, the Gentiles, and it included the Jews, yes, but he would become the main missionary to the nations. And he's, he had this faraway place on his mind known as Rome. So briefly, I want you to take a look at the screen Acts chapter 18 through 21, there we have the third missionary journey. So the Apostle Paul, we, we, he didn't call them those trips, but we've given his journeys these names. And so he had two prior trips around the world, the known world then. And, and so it's in Acts 18 where his third journey would begin. And this is where he would end up writing Romans. I'm going to move quickly through this uh, Sorry if it's hard to see some of the letters from where you're at. On the bottom right, you see a little J. That's, of course, Jerusalem. Uh, moving up a little bit, there's a letter A. That's the city of Antioch. That had become the sending city for this spread of Christianity. All the missionary journeys 
begin out of this, this city, Antioch. And so the Apostle Paul begins uh, to go through that region there. You see all those little other uh, letters. That's Derby and Lystra and Iconium. And then Pisidian Antioch, a different Antioch. Pisidian Antioch, Antioch. And then eventually Ephesus, right there on the sea. So those were cities and places he had been previous. He, he's visiting them. In fact, he's actually going to be in the middle of this journey collecting money to take back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is suffering a famine. And so he's going on a fundraising campaign to collect an offering to take back to the church in Jerusalem. Now, hang on for a minute. This is going to be confusing and I got to go quickly because I'm looking at the clock and the clock is telling me I have to go quickly. While in Ephesus, he begins what we'll just call the Corinthian correspondence. Okay. Uh, So there, now you see the little C out there. That's the city of Corinth. And, And so while he's in Ephesus, which he spent about three years in Ephesus. So a lot of things are happening while he's there. But he began to have this correspondence with uh, the church at Corinth. Uh, He had been there on a second journey, and and there's a situation going on that that wasn't good. He learns that apparently there's a man in the church who is is having an immoral relationship with his stepmom, and everyone knows about it, and no one's doing anything about it. Um, The church should have disciplined that so-called brother, as Paul would write. They didn't. They let it go. And so Paul wrote them a letter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, he says, I wrote you in my letter. So this is 1 Corinthians. But he says, I wrote you in my letter, implying what we'll call a previous letter. One of my kids asked me, Dad, do we have that previous letter? We don't. Every New Testament scholar wishes we could find that previous letter. Uh, We don't have it. But he, he references this previous letter. Then at the end of 1 Corinthians, and early in the letter, he's going to talk about some people that come to visit him, and so, um, and they give him a report, and so he writes 1 Corinthians while they're in Ephesus, probably in 56 AD. Um, We aren't exactly sure of this, but it seems like maybe the Apostle Paul took a visit to Corinth during that three years, because in 2 Corinthians, he's going to talk about a painful visit Um, he's also going to talk about a sorrowful letter. So he comes back from that painful visit, and then there's a a sorrowful letter, we, we, we think, as we put these different phrases together. All this is going on while he is in Ephesus, and he's trying to work things out. He, he finally leaves Ephesus, and he makes his way up to, to Troas. He's trying to find Titus and meet up with Titus, and it's while he's in Troas, um, that he's called to go to Macedonia. And so the P there in Macedonia, that's Philippi. Probably that's where he went. That was the first city in Macedonia that had a church. And while in Philippi, he writes Second Corinthians. So this is why I say it's Corinthian correspondence. We have Corinthians 1 and 2, but there seems to be a previous letter. There seems to be a sorrowful letter that we don't have. Possibly a visit. All those things make up this correspondence. Again, that would be also in probably... AD 56, he finishes rounding out some of the cities he had already been to, the city of Thessalonica, Berea, and he makes his way down to Athens, there the A, and then uh, he makes his way over to Corinth, and he kind of finally resolves some of the things, hopefully, with the church that they had been working on with all those letters that you see. But all the while, Rome 
is on his mind. You see the R. See where that is. Well, what we'll learn is that Paul wanted to go to Spain, which is even farther off the map. And it's almost as if Rome would be the ideal place. So he had never been to Rome. But just remember, when when the church was born in the early book of Acts, chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, there were people from all over the known world in Jerusalem to worship. And remember, over 3,000 were saved that day of Pentecost. And so it's likely that some people were changed and saved and they were from Rome and they went back. And then over all of Paul's years, three years in Ephesus, there would have been opportunities for people to, to hear the gospel and take it. And so he has Rome on his mind. And from Corinth then, probably AD 57, he, he writes the letter we're looking at. You catch all this stuff? Small, I know, on, on your screen. Middle to end of the 50s is when he writes this letter again. They've been on his mind. He, he's going to write the letter, send it on ahead of him. He's going to now follow uh, the green uh, here. Um, he's going to go back through those cities uh, there, and he's going to make his way uh, to Miletus. He's going to call for the elders of this church at Ephesus, that's Acts 20, and pray with them. And, um, and then he's going to Jerusalem, right? Because he's got this money he's been collecting for the relief effort. And what we know from the book of Acts is um, he doesn't quite get there as he had hoped um, or as he intended. He would get arrested and, and he would make his way uh, to Rome to, to be on trial, but a little different than, than what he intended. A couple things as we wrap up this morning. And, and as I said, we, we will spend um, time in, in this book, in this very purest gospel book. Um, a couple things I want us to note. One to seven, he's giving a salutation. It, very different than how we write letters nowadays, right? Typically, we write to Rome, if, if we were going to write to the church at Rome, and then we write what we want to write, and then the very end, we would say, sincerely, the Apostle Paul, or, or whatever. So they did it a little differently. They, they started letters in the ancient world with a salutation at the front end, and that's what verses one through seven are doing. But there's so much pure gospel, even in these, these seven verses. We'll, we'll be back in them briefly next week as we then dip ahead into verse eight and following. Verses two to four, I said we'd look at it. So he, he is a slave of Christ Jesus, verse one. He's been called to be an apostle. He's been set apart for the gospel of God. And look what he says, verses two to four. This gospel of God, which... God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So we need to hear that, read that, and think Old Testament. The gospel of God was, was promised in the Old Testament. It wasn't just some new, new thing. There were indicators and, and prophetic words that had been given in the, the Scriptures, in, in the prophets, And ultimately, he says, verse 3, this gospel of God, this good news, verse 3, it's concerning his son. And look what Paul does here. He he makes a contrast, verse 3 and 4. He says, concerning his son, who on the one hand was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness 
by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me just end with this, this contrast here. To notice, first off, that this contrast um, has to do with his earthly status or, or state and his heavenly state. That This isn't so much about Jesus being the God-man, about being 100% man, 100% God, but, but more specifically, uh, these balanced statements reflect probably an early Christian teaching about his, his states. So verse 3, he says that Jesus' earthly existence was, was that he was the promised Messiah from the line of David. And so Matthew begins his book with giving the lineage uh, and so on. Um, according to the flesh, could be paraphrased, one writer puts it this way, from the standpoint of a simply human perspective. On the one hand, Jesus is the promised Messiah in the line of David. That's his, his earthly state. But then at verse four, there's, there's this contrast now, this phrase, um, according to the spirit of, of holiness. So then we see in verse four that he was declared to be, and that word there could also probably better translated as appointed. It wasn't just a declaration, a verbal statement, but, but a declaration of, of Jesus as the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection. So, so he, he, of course, as the eternal son, always had a glorious state, but in coming to earth and, and dying and then being raised, now there's this declaration of his appointment to this new status, son of God in power, right? Because now he's risen, he reigns, he reigns. There's this new glory, we might say, and, and ultimately, this new glory, this new power is what brings salvation to everyone who believes. So here's a teaser of where we'll get to, Lord willing, next week, verse 16. Paul's going to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of God concerning his son. For this gospel, this good news concerning Jesus, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek His, his salutation here, friends, is, is rich and loaded. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, this glorious contrast between the earthly state of Jesus with what has happened now because of his resurrection. And he brings it all to a close at verse 7 by saying, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's typical little salutation, grace and peace. We'll talk about those words a lot in this series. But notice what he says to these in Rome. And this is what I want you to hear as we wrap up this morning. Those of you that are loved by God, called to be saints. Friends, if you are a Christian this morning, you are loved by God. You are loved by him. If you're a Christian this morning, you have been called to be a saint. Now, we don't go around introducing ourselves as St. Paul, you know, St. Bill, St. Sue, probably for good measure. But, but, but we are saints in God's eyes. We're, we're holy ones. Now, we're saints who sin, right? We're, we're, 
in this process of sanctification. But we've been called. This is, this is effective, or as theologians put it, effectual calling. Just as Paul was called to be an apostle, and it was effective. If you're a Christian, if the gospel has worked its life in you, you're loved by God, and you are a holy one. You're a saint. Friends, do you, do you live like you believe that? I hope you do, and I, and I hope you'll be encouraged today to continue to. We're going to see uh, in many weeks some other verses that are very famous from Romans 8, where Paul says, who can separate us from the love of God? He's asking a rhetorical question. Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No, in all these things, He says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The very purest gospel. If you're a Christian, you're loved by God, you're called to be holy. And if you're not a Christian, maybe today's the day for you to respond to this pure gospel, this invitation to, to believe on the Lord Jesus, to confess and believe and, and, and be cleansed and forgiven and to be made right because of what Jesus has done. Now, we're going to unpack it in the weeks to come, but maybe today's the day. And if it is, I encourage you, just respond and, and come talk to me after. Know that you're loved and know that you're called to be a saint. And finally, just as I've been praying for this gospel to work in us, um, to to renew our our hope and trust in it, I I hope we will be praying for people in our life. And so I've asked this of you before a few times this year, and I want to do it one more time this morning. Who's your one? I didn't make a slide of this, and I was thinking of this verse. I'll, I'll read it. Later in Romans... Chapter 10, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Jews, my countrymen, is that they may be saved. Who's your one that you're praying, like Paul, that that God would save, that this gospel, good news message would work and bring life? Keep praying. We need to persevere in prayer. And we're going to be reminded in this series through Romans to pray and to keep praying. And let's see God do that work. Would you stand with me as we conclude with one song based out of these verses from Romans 8. Thank you, Father, that nothing can separate us from your love if we are in Christ. Nothing can. Not even our own sin. Forgive us for not living in light of who you've called us to be as holy ones and saints. And thank you that your forgiveness is there. But oh, I pray you'd remind us that if we are in Christ, nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us. And I pray we would live in light of that truth, even even today, even this morning. And Lord, 
Remind us to pray for people that we care about, family members, friends, neighbors, classmates, coworkers, to have at least one person that we are, are saying, God, would you, would you save? Just as you saved so many people and you, you do save so many people, save the people we're praying for. And now as we end our, our service with this song, again, may these truths equip us for the week to come. In Jesus' name.